Amen. Well, thank you, Parker, for leading us, Catherine, instrumentalists, choir. Such a blessing to be able to worship with you all this morning. I want to invite you to join me in Luke chapter 17, beginning in verse 11, to follow along as we hear again the story that you've heard read already this morning. He was a misunderstood man, really, cast aside by society, forced to live in seclusions and the outskirts of town. Just the sight of him made people fearful, which was all fine by him until all these other outcasts started showing up. See, the king was sending other fairy tale creatures to live in his swamp. Oh, sorry, I'm not talking about the leper. I'm talking about Shrek. You know, that friendly, fictional green ogre. He's got the little things on his head. He walks along with that talking donkey. That may be how you know him best, voiced by Eddie Murphy. The two of them in the movie Shrek were walking along in a field as Shrek is trying to explain to the talking donkey that ogres are not that simple. He's got them misunderstood. Shrek tells him ogres are like onions. That's right. Of course, the donkey says, oh, they stink? Yes, I mean, no. Oh, they make you cry? No. Oh, you leave them out in the sun and they get all brown, start sprouting little white hairs. No, says Shrek. Layers. Onions have layers. Ogres have layers. Onions have layers. You get it? We both have layers. Oh, says the donkey, you both have, have layers. You know, not everybody likes onions, he says. And he goes on to offer a few better ideas for things that have layers, cakes, parfaits. Everybody likes these things. What the fictional green ogre is trying to get across to the talking donkey is that there's a lot more to ogres than people think. There's much more beyond the surface. They're a misunderstood creature, Shrek argues. Well, aren't we all, though? I mean, we all have layers. None of us are one-sided people. We're multifaceted beings. Our life has layers. Our society has layers. Our social circles, the ways we live and talk and interact with one another, none of it is as simple as it seems on the surface, and neither is a passage like this one. And Luke does his best to point out some of these layers. When we read of leprosy in the scriptures, we we know we're immediately drawn to its physical effects. We know it as the disease that so heinously takes on the flesh of the human body, a disfiguring malfunction. One commentator suggests that leprosy in the body might encompass as many as 72 different skin diseases, none of which go away, none of which can simply be healed by modern medicine at the time. And we're reminded as Jesus enters the region that the physical maladies of leprosy are only the beginning of this story, only one layer to what's going on. You see, lepers in the first century are a complicated people. To be a leper in the ancient world is to lose your life one layer at a time. And you usually lost all of it forever. And so we're told in the text that Jesus meets them on the way 
to Jerusalem, which is for Luke to point out that Jesus is on his way to Calvary. It's his way of saying that Jesus is headed in a certain direction. It's the direction of the cross. And as Jesus winds his way toward Jerusalem in Luke's gospel, we're told here that he's in the region between Samaria and Galilee. He's in a literal no man's land, a place between acceptance and rejection. As the saying goes, he's betwixt and between. He's not fully one thing or the other. He's in a land not ruled. You see, Jesus seems to find himself in these kinds of places a lot. Gravitating towards these kinds of in-between people. People that don't belong. The people that are constantly misfits socially or have problems physically. Sometimes they're distraught emotionally. Some are even considered to be unfit spiritually. And so Luke, as he records these details for a mapless culture, doesn't add this detail so we can trace Jesus' route as he would have walked it. But he may be reminding us how any follower of Jesus ought to pattern their life. Going to those kinds of in-between places and living amongst and with and for these kind of in-between people. It wasn't long ago that I was in the church office here on a Friday when a young man in his mid-30s came into the office looking to speak with a pastor. It's not unusual that people come looking for spiritual guidance or someone to pray for them or someone simply to listen to the the tough hand they've been dealt, but this one was unique. He was, in every sense of the word, at the end of his rope. His addictions had led him to be pushed out of his house, cut off from his family, away from his children. He came that morning at the end of what he described as one long addiction binge. She said he woke up and he knew it had to stop. Something had to change. He didn't know what to do. He was in between in life. He looked at me and he said, I just woke up this morning and I I realized that before I do anything else, I need to know what God says. Now it's possible that it's just a literary device that Luke uses to get Jesus from one place to another. But I'm convinced that there's there's more to it. You see, Jesus' journey isn't a coincidence. It's not happenstance that he goes to the places he goes and ends up beside the people he ends up beside. He could choose another route or take a different way, but we meet him here in a land where it's easy to forget who belongs and who doesn't, where the, the rules don't really apply in between Samaria in Galilee. These are people who have been put in their place on purpose, whether they like it or not, and that's where Jesus travels today. And if I'm honest, I think if we were more faithful, it's the kind of place we'd find ourselves, myself, every day. But our world points us in a different direction, tells us to to choose a side, don't walk in between, just either be with someone or against them. Live at one pole or the other, it seems we're told. Our social lives, our circles invite us to encounter people who are just like us or accumulate into groups that are very similar to our lives. We're invited to keep dismissing some people or avoiding others. We don't have time for people's problems, and if we did, we wouldn't really be creative enough to 
deal with them. But Jesus isn't like that. And I'm convinced that following Jesus means learning to walk in those in-between places, the places where we'll encounter truly broken people. It might mean living in a new awareness for the people I pass every day. It might mean reordering my life, less around what's best for me and more around what's best for God's new life in the world and the people that need it. Either way, Jesus is in this in-between land and he comes up to these people. And it's hard to do. The reality is, if I were Jesus, I'm not sure I would have healed these lepers. Would you? I mean, yeah, we all would want to. Who wouldn't wish that people who are sick, diseased, would be healed? But if I'm honest, I would never have a chance at the healing because I would probably never get close enough to hear them. I'd probably never even get close enough to see them. If we lived in the first century with them, they would be a good bit apart from our daily lives, our daily route. As I read the Old Testament tradition, I don't, I don't think I'm alone in that. Leviticus makes it clear, nobody wanted any part of a leper or leprosy or anything they've touched. And they come in your house, you gotta bring in the whole squad to scrub the place down. The Bible all but assures that leprosy would be out of sight, out of notice. Leviticus 13, 45 and 46, one who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his lip and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall dwell alone in a habitation outside the camp. It's not enough, you see, that they've experienced the despair of extreme isolation. According to the law, first you're removed from your family, then you're removed from the whole community. You're condemned to have and lead a beggar's life. According to the laws of Leviticus, it's not just that lepers were assumed to be sinful, which is bad enough, but they were declared unclean, impure. That's why they had to wear torn clothes to identify themselves to others and were forced to live outside the community on the outskirts of town. They lost the ability to worship God because according to their rules and their faith, they were not allowed in the temple. Well, they were, but in the northwest corner, the space set apart for them, the leper's chamber court that was quarantined off from all the rest of the people. So to be a leper in Jesus' day, you might know, means to lose not just your flesh, but your dignity with it. Because people assumed that this condition was not just a disease. It was God's judgment. And so layer by layer, their skin comes off, and layer by layer, their lives are torn apart. Being required to shout, unclean, unclean, wasn't just a warning of being contagious. It was a theological claim. These people are cursed by God. Lepers, one commentator writes, were shunned because of their disease was contagious, certainly. But it was more than that. It was their pain, their loneliness, their inexplicable fear that no one wanted to catch. So they were kept at a distance. 
Can you imagine being identified only by the worst thing that's ever happened to you? Only by your worst characteristic. Luke's gospel doesn't even give any of these 10 a name. Just leper. Just the worst thing about them. Their most undesirable attribute, like calling someone addict or convict or something similar. Come to think of it, maybe that's why they keep calling me preacher in the hallway. Let's hope not. So I suppose it's, it's no surprise why people, why these men keep their distance as they raised their voice and cried out, Jesus. Well, no, I guess they would have said, unclean, unclean. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And there were 10 of them. And Leviticus says they should say it twice if someone comes near. Did the disciples and Jesus have to hear the word unclean 20 times before we finally get to hear them say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now Luke's the only gospel that uses this Greek word for master. They call out to him by name and claim him to be the commander of the power they need. They call out to him as the, the one who has the authority to deal with the problem that they're facing. And we know from history that Jesus wasn't the only person in Jewish society in the first century to claim to be a Messiah. My guess is he wasn't the only person who was rumored to be able to heal people either. I wonder how many times they cried out to someone to heal them. If I was diseased and desperate, I think I'd ask for healing from every person that walked by. How many people had they called out to by this point that kept on moving? How many people had they asked for healing who didn't even look their way? They're calling out to everybody. But unlike everyone else who just looks and moves on, Jesus sees them. The rest of us look like a train wreck or a car wreck on the other side of the highway, just getting a glimpse, trying not to be caught looking, but it says Jesus sees them like no one else sees them. You know, people in your life every day are in need of the new life, the healing, the wholeness that Jesus offers. Are they seen by you? Do you know anyone who's having to raise their voice just to call out for help? Is there someone you know that's in need? These 10 lepers had to be depending on whatever charity they could scrounge up, begging on the side of the road outside of town. Loving like Jesus loves means we have to see like Jesus sees. And he saw them. And he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. He tells them to go and show themselves to the priests because the priest is the one person, the one authority who can examine them, deem them clean and healed and help to restore them back to life. The priests didn't have any ability to heal, but they could inspect and give the required sin offerings and give the per person permission to come back into society. So each one of them is told to turn and go to the priest as if, the, as if they've already been healed. 
I wonder what that first step was like as they turned to go back into the village where they're not supposed to go and they're not healed yet, but they're all moving. And in the process of obeying Jesus, they discover that it has, in fact, happened. Imagine the experience. And one guy licks his lips to feel them full again. Another one looks down to discover that his half-missing hand has every part again. And with it, he, he pulls back his sleeves and examines the rest of his body. Another one hears the shock of his friends and realizes that the, the ear that had been so damaged is back and his hearing has returned. The sounds of life are available to him again. Another one feels his nose fully return and takes a, a big whiff of the cool panhandle air only to immediately regret it. <laughs> he wasn't missing much. But Jesus hasn't just healed 10 sick people. He's restoring life to them layer after layer. The touch of family, the care of community, the worship of God, the dignity of work, all of these things becoming available to them because of the cleansing that Jesus has just given them. What a gift. But we quickly learn that there's really two stories here. One is about 10 men receiving healing, cleansing. The other is about one man receiving salvation. So verse 15 tells us one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. One is aware that Jesus' healing was only one layer of what he needed. New life from Jesus is going to have to affect every layer of life, and he wants it all. One out of the 10 lepers returns to get more than this surface cleansing. And we're told it's the least expected outsider who wants more than something from God. He wants God in him. He wants God's power in every place that sin and sickness have touched. And so he knows not only has something miraculous happened to him, but the giver of that gift is worth running to. He's received the healing of Jesus on the surface, experienced this restoration on the outside, maybe even in his social life, but he wants more than that. He wants it deep down to his bones, to his soul. And so out of deep gratitude for what he's received, he runs to Jesus and he falls at his feet and thanksgiving. And we're told that with a loud voice, he's crying out to God. And I wonder, is it louder than the voice he raised to cry for help? In the first story, 10 lepers come to Jesus, keep their distance, and cry for mercy. But in the second story, one comes to Jesus, falls at his feet and praises God for having received mercy. And the most shocking detail of all, the one characteristic that no first century Jewish hearer could have gotten past. It's its own sentence. And he was a Samaritan. 
The rest, most likely Judean Jews, are nowhere to be found at this point. You see, these Samaritans were descendants of Assyrian captives, intermarried among the races, letting some to consider them racial half-breeds. And so a Samaritan leper was like a double outcast, the absolute least likely person that Jesus could depict as a role model for faith. Of course, what good could running to a Jewish priest do a Samaritan anyways? He has his own religion and his own temple, and there's nothing there for him. And so those nine leave him as fast as their disease had brought them together. And he's been left by those nine, but in his response we see that he's in good company, joining with the shepherds and angels who praised Jesus at the beginning of Luke's gospel. He's worshiping at the feet of the Savior. And so Jesus answered in verse 17 and said, Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? Foreigner, that's an interesting word. You know, the temple subscription said this kind of foreigner wasn't even allowed inside. It's no wonder he didn't want any part of that priest. And Jesus said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Jesus' response is, is one of the more curious parts of the passage to me. I think it's actually kind of strange. I mean, after all, the nine at this point haven't done anything wrong. They've done what Jesus told them to do. He said, go, present yourself to the priests, and they went. What were they supposed to do? They've done just as Jesus told them. Martin Belt, in his book, The Way of the Wolf, asks, where are they? Just imagine, he says, you've been cured of a disease that segregates you. A dreaded skin disease separated from the contaminated from the healthy. And suddenly the disease is gone, so what do you do? Where do you go? He imagines one leper was a mother. And she ran back to hug her children for the first time in decades. Another was a literalist. If the Bible said, go see the priest, he went straight to the priest. Another was offended. He expected he had to do something to earn the healing. And now all of a sudden he's healed and he didn't get to do anything to earn it. And so he's offended. Another is so happy he forgot to turn and say thanks. And so Jesus is asking, where are the nine? And I wonder with him also, where are the priests? I've worked in churches long enough to know that even religious people don't see nine guys walk in suddenly healed every day. So if nine people t turned up at the synagogue trying to present themselves to the priest to be verified as clean, you would think they'd take notice. Maybe they would track Jesus down and figure out what this power is and what's going on with this man. They're nowhere either. None of them have left what they were doing to discover more about Jesus. As Joel Green says, those most happy with the status quo are the least likely to express hope in the revolutionary work of God. You see, when Jesus shows up to change things, the people who already have it made, who are content, who are pleased with the way life is going, are the least likely to be ready to receive his new life. 
And so none of them show up. It takes the one who has no place, who doesn't belong in that temple anyways. And we can ask about the priests, we can ask about the other nine, but really the focus of the story is that one. The one Samaritan. You see, all ten acted on faith and received a cleansing, but only this one returned to hear Jesus say, your faith has saved you. It's the Greek word sozo. It carries with it the meaning of, of being saved or restored, sometimes translated to be delivered, or in this case, to be made well. He's experienced salvation because he's the only one who realizes that the one who has given them this gift is greater than the gift itself. That's why he's laying at Jesus' feet and yelling in thanks. The other lepers, well, they've all settled for the gifts of God rather than the giver. Now, many pre pre preachers have posed this kind of question that if you could have all the promises of heaven, the beautiful scenery, no more disease, no more depression, friends and family that you haven't seen in some time, all the joy and promises of heaven. But Jesus wouldn't be there. Would that be okay? It's a question that's striking because it still sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And plenty of people love what Jesus has to offer, but too many have sought the gifts of God rather than the giver. It's easy to forget that we're not here for the blessings, but for the one who bestows them freely on us. We're not here even just for his mercy. We're here for him. There's one story that reminds me of the importance of giving thanks about the Nelson family Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving was a big deal for the Nelson house. The family would gather from all over the country. Aunt Susie would bring her famous pumpkin pie. The kids would come from colleges and schools with their boyfriends or girlfriends. Uncle Pat would always burn the sweet potato casserole. The only event that the whole family dreaded was the pre-meal speech by Uncle Mel. Now, if your Uncle Mel is here, just eyes on me. Just keep focused. After the dinner plates were set and the sweet tea was poured, they'd go around the table giving thanks all one at a time. It was more of a formality than really a show. Everyone would just kind of mumble or utter a few things they were thankful for, the family here, the food there, life in general. Not Mel. As it happened every year, everyone rolled their eyes around him as he started giving a speech of thankfulness. It started slow, almost rhythmic. Thanks for the good weather and the clouds and the migratory birds and the duck season and the starry nights. It progressed into a speech about each person gathered around the table, what they meant to Uncle Mel. He went on to talk about friends he had lost along the way, even the way he was raised. The Thanksgiving speech would last well past seven minutes. Everybody's shifting in their chairs. Next thing you know, he's crying as he gives thanks for the cross and next the birth of Jesus. And then Easter as he recounts Jesus' life, death and resurrection, his eyes are pouring with tears. Until finally he stops and everyone can, can move on to some awkward small talk. After the meal, Aunt Susie finally chimes in when he's not listening. What everybody was thinking, I can't believe he wouldn't be quiet. 
making us all wait, carrying on like that, sobbing and crying and preaching at us like we'd never heard the Christmas story before. And a tiny voice, seven-year-old girl, Jenny, like children do, speaks up. I think Uncle Mel has heard of Jesus and what he did. I think he cried because he never forgot. There is a sense in which gratitude is about never forgetting. The healing that we carry around in our lives, the healing that Jesus offers, the gratitude that we owe to him. Karl Barth says, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. And as our season of gratitude, our week maybe, comes to a close, surely there's more than thanking God for a serious amount of food or the things we own or a wonderful break or even great family. So what does gratitude look like for a giver whose saving grace has included giving himself? Jesus gets a 10% return on a healing. What does he deserve for giving of himself for us all? I'd suggest it would start with imitating his life, seeing who he sees. Surely it would look like our lives at his feet. Let's just hope we can do better than one out of ten. Let's pray together. God, this morning we come in awe of your healing, the wholeness you bring to us, the call to be people of healing in the places where the sick are. God, we pray that you would empower us as we go from this place to live in your new life in the midst of a world that desperately needs it. Thank you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.